New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Maravai Starr. She is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. Maravai, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. I'd like to ask you, most of the world's religions emphasize transcendence, and I'm wondering how you would describe the spiritual path as a feminine perspective that may not always be transcending the body, but something else. Can you describe that? Yes, I would love to. This is so deeply dear to me, this topic, because I think that many of us have distrusted our own bodies and our own experiences because of the message of the prevailing masculine paradigm that has, as you said, always emphasized across the spiritual traditions, practices in which we kind of leave the body in the dust. You know, we meditate our way into these altered states of consciousness and we purify through all of these different rituals of ascetic renunciation and somehow see even our personalities and ego, the bad word ego, as these problems that need to be gotten over through spiritual practice. And what that has allowed, the toxicity that actually has risen around these transcendent practices has been not only disparaging of the body, but of the feminine in general, because the feminine is about embodiment and has led to the violations of the earth herself, that the ways in which we have treated and oppressed women, I believe, are intimately entwined with the violations of the earth. If we see physicality, particularity, incarnation, well, in Christianity, incarnation is considered to be holy, but we forget. Like if we see embodiment as a problem to be solved, then we're going to see the earth herself as not worth our loving care. And love and care, I think, is the key here, that if we can see the earth as a cherished relative, if we can see her as a beautiful being that we can't help but fall in love with, then we will do everything we can to protect her and to care for her. If we see her as a mechanism that needs to be fixed, maybe we can come up just in the nick of time with the solutions to the environmental catastrophes that are looming. But if we see the earth itself as a veil of maya, as illusion, then why would we care for each other, for those embodied realities that the feminine so naturally and spontaneously gathers into her arms? Near the beginning of the book, you talk about your early time. You left home and you joined this community, and then you took on a teacher You call him a kind of charlatan, but you didn't know it at the time. And you were young. You were, what, 15 years old. And you speak about this transcendence that you were learning all about and how you were denying your own body. And then 
the violation that happens because of that. You're looking at it in a different perspective. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to speak on that perspective. Okay, yeah. So that when I was a teenager and I was like on fire for God, as I think many of you are listening can relate to those, those early awakenings when that thirst for truth really begins to awaken in your soul. So I was on that path and I was like ripe for this guy to swoop in and say, here, I will take you down the path of enlightenment. Just let me show you what to do. And so there were a lot of practices, rigorous, rigorous practices that were probably beyond me anyway. And he certainly wasn't qualified to teach them to me, but they were all emphasizing meditating myself into oblivion, basically. And the point was to leave the body behind, to enter into these astral realms that, that were the truer spiritual spaces. But by doing so, by allowing myself to be guided through these transcendent practices into these altered states of consciousness, because the body was somehow an impediment to awakening, I allowed myself to be vulnerable to the violation of my body. And that's exactly what happened. I was 15. He was in his 40s. That part of my awakening and enlightenment process included having sex with him. And that not only was it for my own awakening, but that somehow it was for the common good of the entire planet on some kind of invisible realm, you know, some kind of hocus pocus alchemy. And so I, yes, I saw that by emphasizing transcending the body, I left my body wide open for abuse. And that's precisely what happened. And it took me a couple of decades to not only heal from that abuse, but to recognize that the body is the very dwelling place of the sacred and therefore is to be honored and integrated with every element of spiritual life. And I'm thinking that this might also be what is happening, this whole guru disciple yeah. stuff, because it's just rampant. Right, exactly. When there's a power differential, it's really difficult, in fact, almost impossible to avoid abuse of that differentiated relationship. I mean, that even people with the best intentions, if they're going to buy into their own guru status, they're probably going to lose their perspective about their participation in the human condition and fall for the notion that they are somehow set apart and above and therefore not subject to the rules by which the rest of us live. So, Mirabai, if we were looking at it from a feminine point of view, as, let's say, the feminine as the teacher, how would that look as different from this other way of being, this masculine type of teaching? Yeah, that's such a wonderful question. In fact, there are many women who are becoming ordained in the different religious traditions who are actually recapitulating the masculine paradigm and are behaving like those authoritative male teachers that they believe maybe that they're replacing. So I think the feminine way of leadership is much more inclusive and collaborative and relational. And that doesn't mean to say that there are some of us who don't have things to teach and to share, spiritual practices and methodologies that are truly transformational gifts. And we have the ability to teach them. We have the right configuration that enables us to be effective teachers or speakers, or writers. So there are still women spiritual teachers that should take their seat, I believe, in a leadership capacity. But we're not the kind of teachers our teachers were. A lot of our teachers are dying. 
there many, many of our beloved male spiritual teachers are leaving this world right now or have in the last couple of years and will in the next couple of years. It's a very narrow gate right now. So that wave is receding and the, the new landscape is a different landscape than we've ever had before. So we're not sure yet what it's going to look like. But what we are seeing are these certain features that are rising and they're feminine features. They're collaborative. They're relational. They call everybody to the table and know that everybody has some delicious and nourishing and unique and beautiful gift to bring to this feast of awakening of human consciousness and the human heart. So I'm not sure what it looks like yet, but I know that we can only do it together. And for those of us who are feeling overwhelmed by the pain of the world right now, where we hear the cries of the world resounding in our own beings, and we don't know what to do, I have two things to say. One is that what is ours to do is already imprinted on our souls. And it may look different from what we've been conditioned to think service, for instance, is supposed to look like. And two, we cannot do it alone. We must not do it alone. We can only do it together. That we are rising to the call as an interwoven family of beingness. And we belong to each other. I love that. I love that. I'm thinking when you talk about that kind of collaboration... It's very, very different from the authoritarian, and the authoritarian can kind of dictate things and get things done really quick. And we haven't developed a whole lot of patience as we have to reach out and relate to one another and grapple with our differences and come to a loving, wider place of being what you're talking about isn't easy. I mean, it, like right. the words sound beautiful and, oh, this is yes. idyllic. But in practicality, it takes some strength and practice and discipline. And yes. what else? Tell us. Oh, well, Justine, you are a pioneer in this work. You've been doing this work for decades, this circle work with women. And you know what it means to sit there in that fire of trying to work it out and trying to find the truth and stay in the heart. And to come back to the heart again and again and again. That's why the subtitle of this book is Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. That's why these accusations of being a dilettante or trying to find the sweet, fluffy parts of all the wisdom traditions and not go for the rigorous work of transformation are not fair and not true because this is the most rigorous work I know. It requires deep spiritual discipline to stay present when we're conditioned to get away from uncomfortable, ambiguous realities, but to show up and to open our hearts and to listen when we think maybe we have all the answers and the words are bubbling up, like I could just get this thing done, as you say. Women have been conditioned for that kind of efficiency also and conditioned around the urgency. I talk about the to-do lists that are written in fluorescent ink inside our own beings that are stimulating this fight or flight response in all of us and and our brain chemistry is just firing and what about taking a breath as you so beautifully say and becoming present and listening and showing up and leaning in and allowing ourselves to not know and somehow together navigating these treacherous landscapes and find our way to the heart of, well, to the heart. Let's find exactly. our way back to the landscape of the heart. 
Mirabai, I'd love to end this conversation with a story that would illustrate this. And it was something that you went through as a bereavement counselor. You were in a circle of restorative justice. And you were with a mother and a whole family, and there was a, a young man who was incarcerated, and he came to this circle. And he had uh, killed his 16-year-old girlfriend. He ran her over in a car in a moment of anger or whatever, and she died. And can you describe that circle? I mean, when I read this in the book, I was just in tears. Mm. Just, I just was crying. Uh, I could barely read the words. I was in tears when I wrote it, and I, I I make myself cry when I reread it. It was it was in a lifetime of many spiritual practices and experiences, one of the pinnacle spiritual experiences I've ever had, and it was totally secular. So it was a restorative justice circle, as you say. I was the grief counselor of this mother of a 16-year-old girl who had been accidentally run over by her boyfriend in a fit of rage in a fight that they were having in the parking lot after partying. And yes, he was in jail and he was about to be sentenced. And so they decided that they would try a restorative justice circle as part of his ultimate sentencing so that they could see how this worked in our particular community. So in a restorative justice circle, everybody comes together, literally in a circle, with a talking stick that they pass around, and each person in the circle, so the victim and the victim's family and everyone associated, and the perpetrator and their families. In other words, everyone in the community who's been affected by this particular act of violence or whatever it may be, the crime, uh, has an opportunity to just say how they feel and how it has impacted them. And the judge is there, too, and he or she just listens. So everyone spoke. I even spoke recommending that he use his sentencing as a monastic opportunity to do deep spiritual work, read spiritual books. I recommended books. And then the mother was the last person to speak. The girl's sister had spoken who was pregnant with her first child and her her little sister wouldn't get to ever meet the child. Everybody spoke. It was very moving. The mother speaks and she's not crying and she's not blaming, even though she had full freedom to just hurl accusations at him. She spoke very calmly and very lovingly about her loss and what it was like to live every day of her life, to wake up every morning and remember that her feisty, beautiful daughter was gone. And then she extended her attention to him and said, you know, and I know that you've lost your girlfriend, that you're grieving her death also, and that you're facing a long, long time in prison, and I feel for you. And then when the whole circle was finished, which was a very beautiful sharing in our community, and these were not people on a spiritual path in any way. They were very kind of ordinary, mainstream people. When it was all done, the mother says to the guard, can I give this young man a hug? And the guard got the permission and was like, yeah, okay, you can give him a hug. You know, we don't usually do it this way, but everyone was around. It was a protected environment. And so the young man who was in shackles, he was 18, so he was being tried as an adult. And in his orange jumpsuit, and he kind of shuffled to the center of the room, and she went from the other side of the room, went to the center, and she enfolded him. And you could see that she was whispering to him, and he was nodding his head, and they were having this very intimate, completely private exchange. And he... He was just crying as she, as she was holding him. And, and um, it was like the Madonna. It was like Mother Mary was forgiving the people who had crucified 
her son and taking them into her arms. And that's what was happening before our eyes. And it was quiet and it was simple. So, so simple. It was love. It was the love of, of a mother, the unconditional mother love in action, which extends to everybody, including the man who killed her daughter. So, yeah, I will never be the same for having witnessed that. Well, I, I'm not the same, and you really embodied that story and brought it out to us, and it is reverberating as what is possible in this feminine field. And I'm just wishing you well in your continued work in bringing this to our attention and talking to our hearts and souls about the, the feminine and the possibility for the future and what's unfolding. Thank you so much for all your good work. Thank you, Justine. I'm receiving your blessing with all my heart, and I need it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Mirabai Starr. She is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. And if you want to know about her work, you can go to her website, MirabaiStar.com. And she spells her name M-I-R-A-B-A-I, Star, S-T-A-R-R. Com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.